Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. J. Ellen Cross is a practicing witch of Mexican, Native American, and European descent whose craft was shaped by his Catholic upbringing and mixed family culture. Living in his home state of Oregon, he works as a psychic medium, occult specialist for a well-known paranormal investigation team. When he's not investigating, he enjoys providing spells and potions to his local community, teaching classes for budding witches, and serving up piping hot tea for his insta familia. He co-hosts the Invoking Witchcraft podcast and is the author of American Brujeria and the Witch's Guide to the Paranormal. Jay Allen Cross, welcome to Witchlit. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on. And we were just talking before that you, as a podcaster, you too know all of the ins and outs and exciting things <laughs> that can happen <laughs> with podcasting. Oh, yes. It's never boring, at least. No, it's never boring. Uh, but our first question for everyone, especially in this age of podcasting and Instagram and all of that, is why write? Why write books? I love this question so much. Um, and for me, it's it's a couple of things um, that are sort of intertwined. Uh, when I was a little kid, I had a really intense stutter, um, like to the point that I could barely speak. Um, it wasn't just something that was kind of just a, a little bit of an obstacle. It was something where like actual words just would not come out. Um, and I think that's sort of when I began the writing process was simply because it was easier for me uh, to communicate on paper than it was verbally. And growing up, and I'm sure that led into this as well, um, I am a gold medalist in the socially awkward Olympics. Um, <laughs> me and people and speaking is is not something that I would call my forte. Um, so I always kind of joke that I'm better on the page because it gives me more time. It gives me the ability to edit and to clarify and to make sure that I'm being understood in the way that I, I want to. Um, unfortunately, even then, uh, people will interpret your things all kinds of ways. But for me, it was a way that I could try and communicate with fellow humans. Um, that felt most comfortable for me, that gave me the most time and the most space to to say what I really mean. Um, so that's kind of where it where it began for me. Mm-hmm. I know, I, um, obviously, the stutter is not an issue at this point. <laughs> but that what was like from going from writing to then hosting a podcast? I mean, I, also, as you know, a contestant in the socially awkward Olympics with you. I um, like people are like, you're so introverted. Why would you want to do a podcast? I was like, because I'm just talking to one person. What is that like for you? Uh, It was a bit of a leap, to be honest. When I did my first podcast, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, Especially because, you know, as a person with anxiety, living in the culture and the online climate that we live in now, where you say one wrong thing, you phrase something in a way that could be interpreted in a certain way, um, you're kind of screwed. So for me, kind of going into podcasting, it was very nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, though, with my first book, when it came out, uh, Wiser, my publisher was actually wonderful. They got me like a whole PR team, this whole thing. But that meant that I was on so many podcasts. I was for a good several months, I was on three to five podcasts a week. 
mm-hmm. um, for a while. And that really, really helped kind of acclimate me to the world of podcasting. Um, and I do kind of like podcast the the format a little bit, especially because a lot of the time people can't actually see me. So I feel right. like I have a little bit of a barrier or a little bit of some sort of protection there. Um which is nice as a, as opposed to like going up and standing on stage in front of a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking in, into a large group is really weird. And I used to teach and people were like, but you're fine in a classroom. I was like, yes, but I'm in charge. I'm not a peer. Right. It's different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I do, I do wonder sometimes, and, and it's for you to bring this up is that, you know, we do kind of live in a culture where it's really easy to misstep mm-hmm. unintentionally maybe intentionally sometimes, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. mostly unintentionally. And it is, I think, a barrier for a lot of people kind of being willing to, you know, start a podcast, write a book, Mm -hmm. all of those things. Like it is, um, you know, I always say that cancel culture isn't really what people think it is. I mean, the people who get canceled are people who don't have any power, right? Yeah. Powerful people don't get canceled, but exactly. it's, it's, um, it's an interesting kind of tightrope to walk. It really is. It really is. And, you know, I, I do wonder similarly if it's productive. Um, someone posted the other day that they're like, that cancel culture is fine with the powers that be because it's not a threat to capitalism or like you said, those in power. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a threat though, to other people who aren't in power. Um, right. I have, I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings on cancel culture, but yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we have to talk about that off, <laughs> right. off. but, um, so I guess you mentioned the first book and then you have your new book that, that, which is guide to paranormal. So do you want to talk a little bit about getting published maybe with the first book mm-hmm. and this one, since you're with different publishers and I would say that from the outside, they don't seem to be one follows the other. They seem very different topics, but I don't, I mean, having read them both, I think there's definitely a thread, but Hmm. I think looking from the outside, they don't seem to follow each other. So do you want to talk about your publishing journey, I guess, too? Absolutely. So (laughs) my publishing journey, um, kind of was, was a, a bit of, well, I guess a journey, I guess I'll say, um, definitely had, uh, it's twists and turns. So I've been writing pretty much all my life, um, and doing witchcraft for pretty much the same amount of time. Um, and so as an adult, I figured at some point I would probably write a book on witchcraft. Um, and I kind of had the idea that I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, Mexican American folk magic or North American folk magic kind of in that idea. And then a friend of mine, because the universe is funny, um, introduced me to one of her friends named Anwen Avalon, who is a well-known um, writer. She does the water witchcraft books and the water magic books. Um, and Anwen and I hit it off immediately. Um, I absolutely adore her. She's kind of one of my neighbors. And she was like, you need to write a book. She's <laughs> like, And at that time, she was um, in the process of publishing her first book um, through Wiser. And so she provided that connection to her acquisitions editor at Wiser. And but part of that was me getting on a plane with Anwin last minute and going to PantheaCon. Um, in San Jose, where um, I would get to meet uh, her acquisitions editor, who's Judica Isles, um, 
face to face. And that was kind of like a big part of making that happen. And so I'm <laughs> me traveling is not great, um, especially flying. If the Lord wanted me 3000 feet in the air, he would just call me home. Uh, like <laughs> I, I, I do not handle being in the in the the Pringles can hurtling through the space. Um, so but Anwen talks to me the entire flight so that I'm totally cool. We get there um, and I am able to meet with Judica, kind of tell her what my idea is. Um, and she kind of talks me through what they want to see from me as far as like, you know, materials ahead of time, you know, the, an introduction, a couple of chapters, things like that, you know, an outline. Um, so I, <laughs> I go back to my hotel room stay up all night putting all of this together and then I send it to her before I leave um, and come home. And then that's kind of how it all kind of started. Then I get a call from her. They're like, hey, actually, we very much do want to take this book um, and run with it. And they did. Um, Wiser was excellent to work with. Um, they listened to me on a lot of things. They provided me a lot of things. They gave me space to say the things that I wanted to say, which was really important to me. Um, and so they they really did their best to make sure that my first book um, came out with as much you know, with its best foot forward as much as mm -hmm. possible. And that was really important to me. And I really appreciate that. Um, when I get to my second book, though, you're right. They definitely don't follow one another very well. So one's about Mexican-American folk magic. And the next one is about um, paranormal investigation um, from a witchcraft perspective and utilizing spells and, and witchcraft um, to work with hauntings. Um, and a lot of people thought that there was big drama um with me switching <laughs> publishers and all of this because they they are kind of the two competing occult publishers um that i jumped from wiser to llewellyn um but the simple fact of it is that wiser doesn't do paranormal investigation books um which is kind of the only reason they're like that's just not something that we do so um i just went over to llewellyn they were like yeah absolutely we do that um so they picked it up really quick mm -hmm. and uh ran with it as well so just so no drama with the publishing yeah <laughs> I'm like, I get to live in both worlds. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like there's this weird kind of like, you know, are you a wiser author? Are you a Llewellyn author? And I'm like, there are a whole yeah. lot of people who've published with both. This seems like a silly conversation. Right. Uh, and I, I mean, they yeah. are both, you know, the names most people know for mm -hmm. witchcraft, pagan publishing in the U.S., but um, they are a little different. I mean, they do. Like you said, mm -hmm. they, they do kind of do things a little differently. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so what was the seed for the new book, for the paranormal book? This was one actually that I knew from the beginning um, was one that I was going to write, um, at least at some point. I didn't necessarily want it to be my debut, um, but it was something that I was like, no, this needs to, this needs to be a thing. Um, because I've been doing paranormal investigation since I was 15. Um, I won't do the math for how long it's been since then, but I have <laughs> recently purchased a night cream. If that tells you anything. Um, so doing that work, um, and coming at paranormal investigation as not only a witch, but someone who grew up as a psychic medium, um, I had a very different perspective on the work and I had a very different toolkit or bag of tricks um, mm -hmm. when it came to this work. And I was sort of under the impression that a lot of people had that education and understanding of spirits in the paranormal investigation community and was shocked to find out that that's not a thing. <laughs> um, and 
when I do paranormal investigation, what's the most important to me isn't finding evidence. It's finding out what's going on and doing what I can to help where I can. Um, because a lot of times people who contact paranormal investigators are dealing with some really scary stuff and they are mostly looking for help. And unfortunately that's mm-hmm. not what they're getting from the paranormal investigation community at the moment. And I began to realize that when people would contact me from out of state or, or from really far out of my area and be like, Hey, um, I'm experiencing these things in my home. Can you help me? And I'm like, well, I can't cause I'm so far away, but let me contact your local paranormal investigation team see if someone can you know go over there and, and help you. Um, And nine times out of 10, if I would get a response at all from the paranormal investigation team, the response would be, well, we can't do anything to help, but we'd love to come take photos. And it's like, that's not helpful at all. Because once you walk into a home and you see that the family has brought all their mattresses into the living room so that they can be safe together at night, because of what's going on in their home taking photos is not going to cut it Mm -hmm. and i find that witches and psychics and those of us who kind of um are in the spiritual realm have an ability to help people and have an ability to join paranormal investigation where we can actually band together with evidence collecting and being helpful together so that we can actually do something that that really matters Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to teach people to do what I do. So this book is essentially a manual for how I deal with hauntings from a spiritual witchcraft perspective. Yeah. And reading through the book, um, one, it was kind of interesting because I'd listened to your podcast. So I kind of had your mm. voice in my head while you were talking, <laughs> while I was reading, which is, you know, nice to kind of, to have a, a voice behind that, but it did really come across that came across that this is not about the, um, sensationalism of it Mm -hmm. and the you know tantalization that you know people get from like you know paranormal investigation tv shows and stuff but i mean do you i imagine in your work and this isn't really about writing this is more about the book but i imagine in your work that you when people reach out to you that is the cultural mindset that they have is this is what it's like you know it's the Mm -hmm. the guys with the with the readers in the dark with their you know dark vision (laughs) goggles and you know not really i guess respectful maybe is the word um i mean how does that work when you meet with new people and they have this idea of what's going to happen and then you're like no that's not how we work Absolutely. That is something that I am definitely fighting, especially in the witchcraft community, which has really surprised me. Um, when I first started talking about my my new book and I started posting about how I felt that witches should be joining paranormal investigation, um, I was met with a lot of people who, or a lot of witches, who were under the impression that not only was the examples of paranormal investigation on TV were completely accurate, But a lot of them are under the impression that paranormal investigation is only something that happens on and for television. And that if you do paranormal investigation, it's only to try and get on TV. And that was something that I was very shocked by um, for a couple of reasons, because number one, I mean, you would think that witches of all people would know that, you know, media representation is not always accurate. Um, And also it's, um, 
paranormal investigation is something that happens off camera all the time. There are hundreds, if not thousands of paranormal investigation teams out there across the world that I, that aren't on TV or have no mm -hmm. desire to be on TV. I, I, I was asked recently to be on a paranormal investigation TV show. And I was like, please no, like, I really don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I would like witches to be a little bit more open-minded about it. Um, and a lot of them too are under this impression, this um, probably because of TV representation are under the impression that all paranormal investigation is very rude and disrespectful. And um, I, I had somebody try to tell me that traditional paranormal investigation is the harassment kind. And I'm like, no, actually most of the teams that I have come across or worked with have very specific rules about antagonizing the spirits. And if you do, you're often off the team very quickly. Um, that's something that we really don't um, play around with on my team. We're very much mm -hmm. respectful in that. Um, but people don't understand as well is that when you have paranormal activity happening, it's often because that spirit needs something. It's trying to get your attention. And so to go, oh, no, I won't look into that because that would be disrespectful to you, spirit. Um, that spirit is kind of like, please, no, do look into it. <laughs> like, I'm trying to contact you. Or people are like, you know, paranormal investigation should not happen in these places where traumatic things happened historically. And I'm like, if I am a spirit that is stuck there, I would want somebody to come and try and talk to me like so that I could possibly have a, an opportunity to get out of there. Um, so I think a lot of witches need to um, kind of expand beyond the TV representation. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people, too, who are our clients are... <laughs> they're, they're not never really sure what to expect when we show up. Um, and we're often not what they may have had in mind because my team is mostly psychic mediums. Um, we do have investigators who come with the equipment, um, but mostly it's just us kind of walking around talking to the spirits in your house and figuring out what's going on. So it looks very different than what they would expect. Mm -hmm. It sounds like from the book, your goal is also different. Like it, mm -hmm. like you said, the investigators are there to find evidence and proof and, and you're like, we don't know how this works. We just want to resolve the issue for people. <laughs> right. And sometimes that resolution is you have pack rats in the walls. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it is. I mean, do people like when that's happened to people have like, I mean, if they have convinced themselves that something supernatural is happening in their house and you're like, no, it's the wiring or no, you've got an mm -hmm. infestation of rodents. Is there like a, disconnect for them or do they just be like oh that can't be it or is there relief um sometimes there's relief um just because a lot of times that creates something that we call cognitive closure which means that oh great this tied up real nicely um there's not a bunch of you know loose ends and things like that and so mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's kind of a relief for them um but I don't run into those situations very often simply because I've often found that if people are at the stage where they're calling a paranormal investigation team, they've probably got a haunting simply because 
people don't just call paranormal investigation teams all willy nilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, it often takes a long time for them to work up to that stage because that's something that um, comes with a lot of stigma. They're waiting for people to ridicule them. Like, what do you mean? You think your house is haunted? You're calling a paranormal team? Like what? Um, so by the time people have actually kind of worked up to it, um, then I'm you're you're pretty you're pretty much like, yep, something's going on here. They've experienced something. They've seen something um, that really, I I find most people do actually have a haunting if they think they do. Yeah. It's just like, like you're saying, basically they've, they've had the electrician out, they've had pest control out and they're like, there's nothing in your house. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Kind of to get back to the, I guess, writing aspect of it. So you have a podcast, you do paranormal investigation, you're writing books. Do you have a day job too? Like, how do you balance all these things? What does your writing life look like? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, writing when I can. Um, I'm lucky to work from home. Um, and we've been blessed with certain circumstances that have allowed me to write pretty much full time this last year. Um, and I've been given the opportunities to do things like write articles where I make a little bit of money, um, doing that, which is great. Um, and I do witchcraft full time as a job. So a lot of my, um, day to day life is doing things like tarot readings for people Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, doing spell consultations or spiritual coaching or things like that. And so I get to set my own schedule, which is really nice. So I can carve out time for writing, which is uh, very important to me. Um, And so I spend what I can, the time that I can, um, you know, writing. And for me, though, being being the one that stays home, you know, sometimes you sit down to write and that pile of dishes is just staring at you. (laughs) So you got to get up, you got to do that first and then and then do the writing and then Mm -hmm. do the writing. So. Yeah. Oh, no, I relate to that. I one of the things that um, I miss in the pre COVID times is when I would have those days where like everything in the house was a distraction for writing. I would just go sit in a coffee shop and write. Yeah. But now it's not as still not quite comfortable doing that yeah i mean i'm in california so i could probably sit outside but then i can't see my screen right you know it's a the weird to have that like i guess i not really a crutch but like a tool Mm -hmm. that i use to get out of that headspace of oh let me alphabetize the pantry instead of writing you know yep yep um so with it sounds like with a lot of what you're doing with writing with your you know your actual witchcraft practice and with the paranormal investigation, you're kind of, I mean, you're a public witch, basically. So what is that like? I mean, I, I've talked to a couple of people on the show about it, but I feel like it is a very different thing than just mm-hmm. being a practitioner, to mm-hmm. be a public practitioner, and to be publicly known as a witch is a different life. It is. It is. Um, and it's one that some days um i would just love to nuke my entire instagram and just <laughs> go back to not being a public figure um in any capacity um because it's something that sort of just happened by accident i just kind of started a an instagram and was just kind of like cool gonna post my witchy stuff and it, it turned into what it is now mm-hmm. um and i never intended it my original um <laughs> my original goal was to get 850 followers and that was going to be amazing. Um, here we are now. <laughs> um, yeah. And 
it is it is difficult simply because a lot of times people think that they that they know you um on a personal level and therefore um by knowing your work or by listening to your podcast that they know things about you and then they make assumptions which is very difficult um so I've had people who have read my book and disagreed with something in it. And so for them, that means I'm a terrible human. Um, and I'm like, we don't actually know one another. <laughs> so that's something that's difficult is I often find that people have their own ideas about me without even ever meeting me or speaking mm-hmm. to me. And that's something that's um, difficult because I, I do prefer to be understood. And that's part of why I write is to try and be understood as much as I can. Um, but that's never anything you really have control over. So being a public witch is, I like that I have freedom to be open about who I am. Um, but also it, it comes with stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I think co- commenting on that, like the parasocial aspect mm-hmm. of social media and having a podcast and those kind of things. I I think that a lot of people do understand that like celebrities, Mm -hmm. that what they know is a persona, but I feel like with the intimacy of social media and the intimacy of podcasting and things like that, I mean, people listen to you in the car or when they're laying in bed at night, you know, they Mm -hmm. have this very different um, interaction with those kind of things that, um, that parasocial bond is stronger on their end, but you're Mm -hmm. still a persona, you know, that is, I think that there's more cognitive dissonance there than it with like a celebrity figure. Who's like an actor or something. Mm -hmm. Who seems so far away Mm -hmm. versus, you know, the podcaster that's going with you to work every morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. That's for sure. But um, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have, like, how do you navigate that? Like, do you do anything like in your practice itself to kind of navigate that? Um, no, I mean, you know, I always doing what I do and being who I am, you always have to, you know, make sure that you have your protections in place and that you're doing regular cleansings just because all that stuff that people think and feel about you, you know, always gets sent there. Um, but to be honest, a lot of it has just been how I frame it in my mind mm-hmm. um, because when you put out something like a book, it's very easy to want to know what everybody thinks about it. Right. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. When I first started getting my book published, everyone around me who I knew who was an author told me, they're like, do not under any circumstances, read your reviews. (laughs) They're like, don't even read the good ones. They're like, don't read any of them at all. And, you know, I, I disregarded that um and came to understand why um because the truth of the matter is is that once you put something out there you can never control how people respond to it and even though the the response to my book was overwhelmingly positive um there were a lot of people who um felt the need to be a certain way i had people dedicate their entire tiktoks to hating me um all kinds of stuff Um, which of course, after that, they announce their own book that's coming out. Uh, so you begin to realize what it's all about, you know, going through it. Um, so for me, a lot of it was learning that what other people think about my work is none of my business. 
Yeah. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that, you know, anything like that. It's simply none of my business. So people will send me things. They're like, hey, I did a review of your book on my website. And I'm like, great, not going to read it. Because like, you know, you do that. Absolutely. You are entitled to your opinion, but it's none of my business what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's simply the best way I found to just, you know, live at this point. Yeah, I I think... <laughs> all new writers get that advice not to read reviews and all mm-hmm. new writers don't take that advice. Right. I mean, it's just <laughs> one of those things, but you're right. I mean, I think once we put something out into the world, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or, mm-hmm. you know, even the podcasts, like mm-hmm. it doesn't really belong to us anymore. Yes, exactly. It's and, no longer mine. Right. And, you know, perception of the person, you know, reading it or listening to it or, that is the reality for them. Like mm-hmm. whatever you intended might have gotten through but Mm -hmm. not necessarily. So, right. I had people, um, come after me for saying things that I were not in the book at all. Um, but it were things that they had interpreted, um, from what I said based on, you know, their own personal experiences. And that was a very strange thing for me because I'd be like, wait, they're, that's not in this book. I never said that. But if you take, you know, leap one, two, and three, and you end up over here. Um, so, so that was something that was interesting for me was the fact that you, you can be as clear as the day, at least as far as you're concerned, and still everyone's going to read something very different from what you put out, which is also part of the magic of books too, Mm -hmm. is that people, everyone is going to read something different when they read your book. So, yeah. Um, I was talking actually to another wiser author, I think that, I think that was already up, that episode's already aired, but about kind of the animism of books, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that the manuscript that you're working on has its own spirit or own, Mm -hmm. you know, presence, but then every copy of that that goes out, then becomes its own thing too. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um. So it's an interesting, interesting way to look at things. So when you are writing, like when you're home, trying not to do the dishes, like what <laughs> is, what is like your perfect writing day? What is like, this is the, do you have rituals around it? Do you have like certain things that you, are you just one of those people who's absolutely not precious about it? And I just write when I write. Um, I, I do have some kind of rituals. I'm not necessarily a superstitious writer, but I do think that there are certain things that help. Um, So for me, um, a a playlist that matches what I'm writing is really important. Mm. Um, Or at least can a playlist that can kind of put me into the the brain space that I need to be in for writing. Um, So for, I think it was all of American Brujeria I wrote that, I believe, listening to the instrumental soundtrack to Where'd You Go, Bernadette, um, which is my most favorite um, novel. And I I love what they did with the film. But um, I listen to a lot of instrumental (laughs) soundtracks when I write. Um, And though that one doesn't really match the theme of the book, um, it was excellent writing music um, to do that. So I do a lot of um, a lot of music um, and I have this old roll top desk that I sit at when I write because it makes me feel all authorly. Um, and something that I like to do because I mean, honestly, mostly I write fiction. I am, I'm not published in fiction, but mostly I do write fiction. So I keep a, a novel from a author that I really respect um, on the desk with me. And mm. it kind of 
cycles. Um, I write mostly horror um, when it comes to fiction. And so I will have like um, a collection of Shirley Jackson's uh, short stories um, Mm -hmm. or um, for a while it was Anne Rice's interview with a vampire that I had. Um, I think my most recent one uh, that's sitting on my desk right now is Stephen King's uh, Lisey story. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of my most favorite books. Um, so yeah, I, that I find that that helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do like that idea of kind of like the altar, but in like a very abstract way of mm-hmm. this is what you're kind of bringing to this writing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's funny. We were talking a little bit before about Aaron Rice. It's funny that you, that is one of yours mm-hmm. too. Um, I will mm-hmm. save that information for listeners for later, but um <laughs> And Rice is obviously not going to be on the show. That's not, <laughs> unfortunately, that is not possible. But um, uh, yeah, I I do. It's interesting you say about being superstitious about writing, because I think there are a mm-hmm. lot of writers who are a little bit superstitious. You know, they have, mm-hmm. I only use these kind of pencils or, you know, I only do it this time of day or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always think of, speaking of Stephen King, I think it's, is it, he's got two books about writers and I can't remember mm-hmm. which one this in, but I think it's the dark half mm. where he uses the barrel black beauty pencils. And that yeah. image has stuck with me for so long of like a writer that's like so dedicated to this tool being yes. important to writing. And I was like, you know, in the days of just typing it out in a word processing program or <laughs> kind of not as romantic, I guess. Yes. Yeah. That was something interesting too, when I was reading misery, um, was the amount of, uh, writing kind of talk that went through it, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, Paul Sheldon is a writer and the main character, but, um, talking about like the typewriter and like what kind it was and working with it and all of that. And we, we don't realize that the days of typewriters were not that long ago. We, no, when we think all. of typewriters it, in our brain, it's like, you know, a little house on the prairie or something like that, but it yeah. really was not that long ago. We're talking like the eighties. Like, yeah. I was going to say, I, I was in high school in the eighties and we still had typing class, Yeah, not keyboarding. It was still typing on electric typewriters. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't and I'm like, take I it. could not imagine being, <laughs> being a writer on a typewriter because I mess up so much yeah. <laughs> that the ability to just backspace is a, is a boon. Thank God. Yeah, exactly. I, when I, the first year I w- went to college with like a brother word processor, which mm. trying to explain this to someone now, it was like a portable suitcase sized word processor that had a screen that was about three by five. And that was like a huge screen because most of them just you could see three lines at a time uh-huh. when they first came out. And that was like very high tech to have that. And now, you know, like I can't even imagine what someone would, you know, like someone who's only ever worked on a computer screen would be like, what is this? <laughs> right? How did you work like this? Yeah. 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 But we cool. did. I mean, that was the, the thing. And I mean, I know of authors, I know a few authors who do always write longhand first. Then I know mm-hmm. if you who do work on like old typewriters, that that's their preferred medium. And I do think, you know, that, I don't know, it is interesting, but that I was also thinking like in context with your book about like, if you do use an old typewriter to write, what are you bringing in? Like what, who else has been writing on that typewriter? Yeah, right. That's what I'm wondering that's too. Kind of I'm like, interesting. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wonder about that as well. But. It could it could help 
could hurt depending on yeah. you know who owned it before you if they had great amounts of inspiration that might you know rub up on it or maybe they had a very turbulent writing career you or know you never know invoices for you know right a widget company yeah. <laughs> or something <laughs> Uh, so fiction. So what is, do you have plans to get this fiction out in the world or? Um, I hope to, we'll see. It's a very different world from, uh, the nonfiction that I've been published in and I've been really blessed to be successful in nonfiction. Um, but that was, um, kind of a weird, almost accidental stopover. Mm -hmm. Um, even as a child, when people, you know, would ask me like, okay, what is it that you want to do? I would tell them I wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I, I used to write as a, as a child and continue to write growing up and all this and have, I've written many terrible, terrible novels <laughs> that are on my computer and will never see the light of day. Um, but hopefully at some point, um, I will add fiction novels, um, to my repertoire. We will see cross your fingers for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say, I'll put that out there for you. I am a, a consummate cheerleader for people who want to get their work in the world. I just, I, I just want to hear people's stories. So, yeah. And, um, as Mr. Gaiman has said multiple times, only you can write the book you're supposed to write. So exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess since you have a published fiction, I'm going to ask you this anyway, because I think mm -hmm. it, in your fiction, how does your like your practice and your belief like if you're writing horror I assume there's magical elements to it mm -hmm. like how important is it to you that that be realistic or are you like oh no it's fiction magic is cgi magic it doesn't matter how realistic it is um you know it kind of depends on what exactly it is that i'm writing um for the most part i do like to keep it as realistic as I can. Um, just because I think that that adds um, a little extra body to it mm -hmm. when it's a little bit more in depth than simply just, you know, oh, you wave your hand or you say the funny rhyme or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I find that that adds a little bit more depth to it. But what a lot of witches don't understand is that when it comes to fiction, making sure that everything is exactly um, correct, magically speaking, is not very exciting. Um, and it also takes a lot of time and a lot of explanation. Um, and so, you know, this, your, your witch character is going to go cast a spell. Mm -hmm. And so they start by grounding themselves and then they cast a circle. And then it's like 30 pages later and like, you're like, okay, we need to actually kind of chop this down. Um, so when it comes to writing fiction, I like to incorporate as many realistic elements as I can, mm -hmm. but I'm a writer that's like, you know what, this is fiction and fiction is fiction for a reason, um, because people aren't here for a course in witchcraft. People are here for a story. And if I stop to have 30 pages on casting a circle in a mm -hmm. very correct manner, um, that's going to absolutely kill the story. Yeah. So I, you know, where you can make it realistic, that's great, but I don't like to get hung up on it, mm -hmm. especially if it's something that I feel like is damaging the story. Yeah, I know it's interesting. I've had in critique groups people because I, I have published fiction and yeah. always there's kind of a witchy character and magical element, contemporary fantasy kind of stuff. And I've had in critique groups people say, Well, how does that work? And I'm like, Do you mm -hmm. want to know that 
because you want to know that and you have a question about it? Or do you think I need to explain that to you in the book? Right. Because those are different. Yes. Very different. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm excited at the prospect of you getting fiction out in the world. And when you get that published, we'll have you back on. You can talk about your fiction book. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, so... I mean, with American Brujeria and with um, The Witch's Guide to Paranormal, a lot of this is kind of based on your own experience. I mean, I know there there's footnoting and things like that. Mm-hmm. But do you, did you feel like you really did a lot of research for either one of those books or those really like the research kind of filled in what you needed to verify for folks? Like how, mm-hmm. what was the process of kind of getting the information in those just as a nonfiction author, I guess? Yeah. Well, uh Research did go into both of them, but not the research that a lot of people would expect. Um, There's kind of this big movement right now to make uh, occult writing very academic with, you know, uh, peer reviewed academic sources and things like that. The truth of the matter is when it comes to magic, especially folk magic, your sources are um, some old lady at the gas station that gave you a corn (laughs) doll and told you to spin around three times. Um, Like there's not a lot of like, I'm now going to uh, cite the Harvard Journal of magic and wizardry or I mean that doesn't really <laughs> exist um so the research for the first book um was not only my own experience but I sat down with a lot of people who are Mexican-American or immigrants from Mexico um and asked them about their lives and their families um, because when it comes to folk magic folk magic is something that really gets kind of embedded into just everyday things And so a lot of the times people I sit down with would be like, oh, no, I don't know anything about folk magic. And I'd be like, hold up, like, just stick with me here. Um, (laughs) And you start kind of asking about their life and they realize how much magic is in it um, and how many rituals and superstitions and things they do for good luck or to get rid of envy or the evil eye or whatever is really just kind of all over the place. Um, So for me, it was a lot of interviews. It was a lot of talking to real people and then kind of translating that into information for the book, which was really helpful. Um, For the second book, um, I did, you know, read a few books and kind of perused a a, a few things to kind of, um, because I, I always feel that it's important that once people finish one of my books, they know where to go next, because there's no way to, really create a complete guide to anything really. Um, I can do my best to to teach you everything that I know, but after that, you're going to have to go out and it's important to see other perspectives and things like that. So I, I did kind of pick up a few books, kind of go through them, um, see which ones I liked. And then I added those into the book as well. Um, and kind of did some citing in there just because people really like to see that these days. (laughs) Um, so I went in and made sure that those were in there. Um, but honestly, the bulk of the research for that was, 16 years of paranormal investigation and being a psychic that has spoken to these spirits, worked with these hauntings, a lot of trial and error (laughs) Mm -hmm. to find out what things work and what things do not work. Um, And I was able to share some of uh, the books that had really helped me. So in particular, uh, Marianne Winkowski's book, uh, When Ghosts Speak, um, was super impactful on me and helped me understand so much of what was going on with ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so highly recommend it. Oh, okay. Okay. So I guess 
I want to ask this question, but I don't want it to be salacious. So I'm trying to figure out how to word oh. it. But like in your investigations, I guess this is the way to do it. In your investigations, is there like one particular that really stands out for you or has kind of stuck with you? Like something that you just can't shake or like, I just think, you know, like most people who are in helping professions, you know, nurses, teacher, you know, have like a student or a patient or that just doesn't go away. Like even if the situation mm -hmm. was resolved, I imagine that's kind of true for you. So is there something like that? Um, a little bit. I've had, <laughs> I've had several that have stuck with me. Um, I've come across, um, religious cults of earthbound spirits that are, kind of doomsday hiding in places, um, afraid to move on through the light. Um, I've come across um, spirits that have made friends with spiders in basements and don't want to leave them. Um, all kinds of things. One that I do wonder about um, quite often. Um, we got a chance to investigate the Montgomery House in Kalama, Washington. Um, and it's, it, it was open for investigations for a while and then it changed hands and became a private residence. And then they decided to open it up to investigations again. And so, um, one of my friends, their team were, were the first people to get in once they had reopened it and they asked me to go with them. And so I did. Um, and while we were there, one of the first spirits that we met, um, was a woman named Ruth. And she was taking nobody's crap. Um, mm -mm. She was, as soon as we walked in, she was like at the top of the stairs, like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, and I got to know her really well on that investigation. And she, we found out um, kind of through, um, I was there with several other mediums. Uh, we kind of figured out through working with her and then through going online and actually looking this person up um, that they had ran a and b out of the house. And what's so funny is in death, she was still running a and b for spirits out of the home. <laughs> so like there were so many spirits in that house because they all needed a place to stay. And so they all kind of had like their own stories, but she was in charge and kind of keeping everything together. And there were several spirits in the house that I was like, not super excited about where I was like, you know, cause there's like kids in the house and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know how comfortable I feel with a spirit being here. And she's, and she made it very clear. She's like, no, I keep everybody here in line. And if they don't, then they have to leave. Like, and they were all kind of a little bit afraid of her. So I do sometimes wonder about Ruth and how mm -hmm. she's doing and, um, you know, how, how all of that is going for her. The, the family that's there right now aren't bothered by um, mm -hmm. the haunting much. And they kind of, um, they, they, it's, it's kind of something that they've grown familiar with. That's kind of right. like having friends in the house a little bit. Um, so Nobody seems bothered and that's great. Um, but I do, I do sometimes wonder how Ruth is doing. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I you write about that in the book too. And I, that section, it was just like, so the resolution for that is like, no, she's in charge. You're fine. I yeah. mean, there's not really, the resolution isn't really, they need to leave. It's, mm -hmm. this is what's going on. Yeah. 
so and you know sometimes you know if if they want to leave I'm I'm happy to help them do that and but sometimes you come across earthbound spirits and they're like no like I have a job I'm fulfilling a purpose over here mm-hmm. and especially for something like that you know having community on the other side is really important I can't imagine being dead and alone <laughs> you know like that sounds terrible so yeah yeah I one of the things I wanted to ask you about in the book and again this is not writing this is what you do i guess but um you talk about the difference between like imprinted hauntings like that mm-hmm. the time loop kind of thing which i think gets used a lot in popular media i mean mm-hmm. like you said the the widow's walk kind of thing is is very tropey but also like it's a story that's everywhere has one pretty much mm-hmm. if there's water there's a widow's walk story right and um and the difference between like earthbound spirits and i was just mm-hmm. thinking you know like the i guess the that idea that if it's an earthbound spirit it would fade over time Mm. but these Mm. time loops can last it seems like from what you're saying longer Mm. so it makes me like the just a really roundabout way to get to this but i was just thinking about the like the negative truth in folklore there's always like Mm. a negative truth right Mm -hmm. And, and those time loop things seem to feed that maybe even more than other kinds of hauntings, it seems. In what way? In that they would be more persistent over time, uh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. It, I think about things like, especially in Europe, what do you think? Like Anne Boleyn still haunting mm-hmm. the Tower of London. Well, you know, in theory, she should have moved on by now. <laughs> right. <laughs> is it a time loop kind of thing instead? Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's just that I guess it is kind of writer's brain. Like, how does that work? Like, how do you right. how do you pick that apart and think mm-hmm. about like, you know, what is the story? I guess mm-hmm. what is the story really? Right. And I I do love that because it is kind of these um, weird snapshots, you know, of people's lives and of their story. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it does it does beg the question, you know, what happened here? Why did you make this walk so many times that it became imprinted on the space or what was happening in you at that time that put out so much energy that it scorched, Mm -hmm. you know, this moment into this place? Um, it, It does. It does make you wonder. Yeah. Yeah. So being, you know, kind of in public for what you do in writing these books and people, I guess, assume also know that you do paranormal investigation. Do you get a lot of random people coming up to you with their ghost stories? Oh, yes. <laughs> I do get that. Um, which is, which is great because it's so funny when they do it because you can tell a lot of the time or, uh, or I'll be in social situations where people will ask what I do. And if I'm feeling adventurous that day and I tell them the real answer, um, they'll often um, immediately launch into some sort of story. And sometimes they're bananas. I've had complete strangers be like, oh, interesting. I was abducted by aliens at this point. And I'm like, oh, cool. Just met you. What was your name? Um, <laughs> but you can also tell the reason why they have that reaction is because they've had something in them like this story this experience that they haven't had a safe person to tell about Mm -hmm. and as soon as they understand that you're a safe person that story can come out for the first time and sometimes i sometimes you also wonder if they're if they're kind of like in control of it because sometimes they do kind of just like you can see them kind of word vomited out like this (laughs) thing happened to me at one point and i was this age and this thing and i saw this stuff and um like so i 
I think that that's number one, very neat that they've identified me as a safe person that they Mm -hmm. can share that with, that they often haven't told anyone else. Um, And also that they're getting that opportunity to actually not only tell the story to somebody, but tell that story to somebody that goes like, oh yeah, I've seen something similar to that. Or um, I understand what that might, must be like for you because I've, you know, had a similar experience or something like that. So it can be very validating for them and very healing for them. And you can kind of see them too, after they're done telling you, they kind of have this like, oh, like, oh, I didn't even know that that was in there, like struggling to get out. But once it does, I think it it changes something for people. And I think Mm -hmm. that's important. Yeah. And it seems like a really good attitude. Like I know like a, like a doctor at a party might get sick of people saying, can, Hey, can you look at this mole? Right. But, um, but yeah, that seems like a, a better way to kind of absorb those stories without, you know, like having to give advice or you know, you're just a place where that they can land the story and, and maybe that's all they needed. Yeah. yeah. You can hope sometimes that's not all they need, yeah. at which point it does become the, the, the doctor at the, at the party, um, yeah. which I, I do run into that. And it can sometimes be, um, hard to make friends doing what I do because people, um, get interested in knowing you based on, you know, what it is that you do. And then that entire friendship just turns into them texting you every time something creaks in their house or something. And it's like, cool. But like, do you actually, you know, know what my hobbies are outside of that? You know, <laughs> I do friendships other can be weird. I do other yeah. Things. yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, friendships as adults, I think are interesting and yeah. much more difficult than when you're younger. But, um, I, I have so many questions for you that are not about <laughs> writing and I just don't want to pepper you with those. I'm sure you will talk about a lot of this stuff with other folks, but, um, one of the things that really stood out to me in the book is the idea that, um, entities do not have to be from that place mm-hmm. and they can come from other places nearby or they just kind of land there on the, you know, the spirit super highway or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause I was thinking a lot about, you know, especially on the West coast, like so much of the infrastructure is new compared to, you mm-hmm. know, the East coast and Europe and other places, like a lot of the material built culture is new, mm-hmm. but it's not, this is not an uninhabited place. <laughs> it was not uninhabited before that. So just this idea of, of people being haunted in new buildings, I think is oh, really yeah. interesting and not something that I think a lot of people think about. They always think about, like you said, the old abandoned asylum or prison mm-hmm. or, you know, not like the apartment complex on Vine and Third or whatever. Right. You'd be shocked at the number of houses or, you know, homes that we get called to that are in these beautiful new developments, like just like you know, you just drive in and it's like, for some reason, just over that area, the sun is shining, <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> these gorgeous housing developments that with all this new construction and you go in and you're like, yeah, you definitely have a haunting, like a, a, a shocking amount of them are in these new houses. And I think part of it is the fact that you have disturbed land, which can definitely be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a lot of these new construction are designed um, with like monetary value in mind and not like proper energetic flow. So something I talk about in the book is um, feng shui and why it's important Mm -hmm. um, to understand kind of the the movement of energy through your home. Um, Because a lot of these houses 
have really terrible um, circulation, essentially. And so it causes these pools of energy that are um, just the perfect habitat for entities and spirits to um, kind of make a home in. (laughs) And so that's something that's difficult. And it's not something that can always be fixed because that's an architecture issue. Like I can, you know, you can put a pot of plant here, you can put a mobile or a light or something over here, or you can paint this a different color, but you know, there's only so much you can do when it, when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, there is kind of like the architectural equivalent of word vomit in a lot of those houses, Mm -hmm. which I guess doesn't work for spirits either. Yeah. It's a lot of like, well, we designed this house this way so that we can fit as many as we can in this amount of, you know, this many acres or however Mm -hmm. much the development is. Um, Not so much, you know, what's, what's the best actual flow yeah, um, it kind of gives know. a whole new dimension to what is the uh, McMansions from hell. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of social media, like she's right. doing quite well with that. <laughs> They've done quite well with that. Um, oh, so um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell folks where to find you and let folks know what's coming up for you. This will air later in the fall. So think about mm-hmm. that, I guess, with classes or anything. And then we'll go on to our last question, which is a tiny game of chance. Oh, yeah. Um, so you can definitely find me um, on Instagram. I am at Oregon underscore wood underscore witch. So it's Oregon wood witch with little underscores in between. Um, take a second look at any of them that you find because there are many people out there attempting to be me. Uh, my best advice is if you're on someone's account, scroll down a little bit because I found that a lot of these scammers have like three or four lines that are my pictures. And then underneath that, they're like a completely different person or a completely different account. And I'm like, that's not me. Um, so definitely take a look at it. I am at Oregon Wood Witch. Um, you can find my podcast, Invoking Witchcraft on Instagram as well. Um, through my personal page, um, I have a link in my bio where you can buy my books, where you can um, uh, book uh, services with me. I do spiritual coaching i do readings i do spell work all that stuff um so you can find that there and you can find my books uh wherever books are sold excellent and we will put all that in the show notes so people can find it easier thank you and so the last question um which i'm um, at some point when i have to stop saying this was things we're not supposed to talk about because the whole <laughs> podcast is kind of that um so depending on what i roll um i will ask you a question tangential to your writing or the topic of the book, so not just out of left field, um, about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. Mm. And if I roll a six, you get to pick which one you want. Uh Five, money. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you say in the book that your team does not charge for doing investigations and resolutions, you know, donation is possible. Um, So I guess, can you talk a little bit more about how you all made that decision and maybe give advice for people to who need to seek services locally to avoid being fleeced by charlatans. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Um, so that was something, so I was doing promo investigation on my own for a really long time and I was doing it for free. That was something that was very important to me. Um, I never liked the idea that, you know, a family could be huddled together in their living room, sleeping all together for safety 
And I'd go, well, I could help, but you can't pay me. So I'm not going to like that. That never sat right with me. Mm -hmm. So I I never charged for it. And then when I joined the team I'm on now, um, they already had a rule about doing it for free. This is a volunteer thing that we were all doing. Um, And if people wanted to donate, they could. Um, And that went to things for the team, like equipment, keeping our website up. Um, You know, at one point we got hoodies, which was really cool (laughs) that had our, (laughs) you know, our name on them. Um, So that was that was a a value that I really liked. And and joining this team, it was nice to find people who felt the same way that I did. Um, If you're going to have a paranormal investigation or someone come in and and help. Um, I, I, there's a few things that are red flags. Um, If someone wants hundreds of dollars to come and investigate your house, let alone fix it, um, but just to investigate it, um, you have to remember too that a lot of the times when you're letting paranormal investigators into your haunted home, you're actually doing them a bit of a favor, you know, because it's like, Hey, this is something you study. So would you like to utilize my home to study that? Like, you know, it's, it's often a favor. Um, If they're going to charge you, it should seem reasonable. um, And it should be something that is predetermined ahead of time that everyone is okay with. Um, something that you may run into and this is a big red flag is like when they want a bunch of money up front and then later come back to you and say oh well actually we need more money because what we've found is very dangerous it's going to require these kinds of special tools or things like that that's an immediate red flag of of something and that's something too that we see when it comes to like scammers for spell casting people will be like oh i picked up the energy from your photo you have a dark curse upon you so i need to break it for five hundred dollars and then you give them five hundred dollars and two weeks later they're like oh i need you to send me eight hundred dollars because this is much more difficult than i thought it was going to be and if i stop now you'll die um so you have to send me the eight hundred dollars so if you start running into that um be concerned and also be very concerned if they tell you or try to impress upon you that they are the only ones that can fix this. Um, that's one that I run into as well, where I've come across people who are like, well, actually I'm special and I have this ability that nobody else has. So you need to pay me. And I rarely find that that's the case. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the investigation part, that really makes sense that you shouldn't, they want to do that. You know, investigators want to go to places where there yeah. might be activity or something going on. So why would you, why would they charge you hundreds of dollars for that? I hadn't quite mm-hmm. thought about it that way, but that totally makes sense. Yeah. There are some days where I'm like <laughs> trying to get something out of somebody's basement. That's trying to like rip my head off. And I'm like, you know, I should probably charge for this, but <laughs> you know, like some days you're like, <laughs> uh, yeah. oh God, but. Well, and I wonder too, like, I don't know that this is the reason not to charge, but it does seem like people will be more likely to believe that what you're trying to do, be less skeptical. Yes. If you're not trying to make money off of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, and that's something too, where like in the book, um, I have a section near the end about the different kinds of clients that you're going to run into. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them that's very prominent that you're going to run into over and over again is the family skeptic 
who's often, not always, but often the oldest male in the household um, and something that they're really worried about and something that they have their eye on a lot is, is the money portion. Are we mm-hmm. being charged for this? Um, you know, is am I going to get a bill? And once they find out that you're not charging them and they spend enough time with you that you don't <laughs> then suddenly begin charging them, you know, that that story doesn't change. Um, then they begin to relax a lot more and actually take you seriously and um, begin to feel that, that you're legitimate. So I feel like that's really important. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to you. I, I, that part was amusing to me because I'm like, you know, as, as witchy as I think I am, I'm like, there's a little skeptical heart in there too. Which is important. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you have to, you know, it's not skepticism in and of itself does not negate magical Mm -hmm. or paranormal things. It just kind of keeps you safe, I think, from people who would want to do you harm, like you said. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your work and letting us know that, you know, there could be fiction in the offing as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you're a literary agent, slide into my DMs, please. Thank yes. you. Listen up. All right. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully, you know, next book we'll have you back on and we'll talk more witchy writing stuff. That'd be great. That would be wonderful. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini. Our music is Voices by Alexander Shinekar. You can support our work at ko-fi.com slash witchlitpodcast. And if you'd like to submit your own death, sex, religion, politics, or money questions, or have questions or comments about the show, you can send an email to victoria at witchlitpod.com. And please be sure to let us know if we can use your name on the show. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.